You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I was uh, not born here in the South. I was not also born in New York, or was I born in Indiana? I was born in Hong Kong. Have you guys been to Hong Kong before? Uh, it is, I've got some head nods there. It is super hot. And uh, man, they have typhoons there in the summer that'll slam your doors and break your windows, and it's like, they call it the urban jungle. They call it the concrete tiger in the middle of Asia, and it's a special economic zone that was different from the rest of communist China, which is two systems, one country. It was a place where you could have uh, you know, communist um, oversight, but then also free economic policy, and it's the only place in the whole entire world that bounced back in 2008 underneath the, uh, underneath the housing bubble thing. And so um, I was born there. I can't be president of the United States of America. I know you're all disappointed. I was going to run at one point, but it didn't work out according to my constitutional privilege. And so, um, and so I share all that to say this. It's like, I just don't know how I got here. I don't know how I became a Christian, let alone I don't know how I became a pastor. I don't know how I'm standing before you in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, but I can say that I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the chapters. I'm grateful for the pages. I'm grateful for the sentences and the commas and everything in between and the story that I have. And uh, I can only be grateful um, for grace, really. Grace is not just the couch. It's God's grip on our life. It's carrying us from one chapter to the next. If I made my decisions... I'd make bad decisions, like God's grace has got me here. He's got you, too, if you're in Christ. And so I remember I was about uh, 19, and I don't think it has to do with Christianity or being Asian or something, like got into a, a new little chapter of conflict with my dad. Y'all had a thing like that when you were 19, maybe 20 years old? It's not like the 16-year-old, like, I want to go drive and do whatever I want. It's like the, I'm going to go be a man or whatever that thing is. But I packaged it as I'm right and he's wrong because I'm a Christian. You know what I'm talking about? As if uh, following Christ doesn't have to do with honoring your parents, no matter who they are. <laughs> and, so, um, and so it was like around 2001, it was, it was the whole Iraq war thing. And it's hard for my dad, understandably so, to differentiate the difference between the kingdom and westernization. Difficult to make the distinction between what it means to become a Christian and what it just means to be Americanized, you know, to be made white or whatever. And so it was a sensitive topic, and I remember talking to him calmly, quietly, peaceably, and then also not so calmly, not so quietly, not so cooperatively and peaceably. And um, I'm thankful that God doesn't just give us um, truth. He gives us guides. He gives us hands and feet. He gives us mothers and fathers and whispers and people that can walk us along, and that's the whole thing. It's not it's not some hierarchy, you know, kind of thing of, of top-to-bottom caste system. It's a circle of a family that sometimes you're leading me, and sometimes I'm leading you, and so we're brothers and sisters. And so Uncle Peter um, made a bunch of money by the time he was 40, and he retired. He, he invented a bunch of programs for uh, blind people uh, over in, uh, in China. He had glaucoma when he was 14. Um, through that ailment, uh, got involved in a Catholic um, kind of mentoring uh, program for um, those with needs, and gave his life to Jesus. My first, my first uncle on that side to give his life to Jesus. I was getting married at 21, and so I did premarital counseling with Uncle Pete, Uncle Peter, and that dude is like Morpheus. Like, he just, I mean, he's a Christian, but like, he'll just break you down. Like, you'll ask him a question and be like, well, what do you think about that? And your whole head falls apart. God doesn't just give us truth. He gives us guides. The Spirit himself is a guide. And so um, I remember he, uh, he had me walk over to my refrigerator in the dorm room uh, or excuse me, in the apartment of the um, place I was living when I was at IU Bloomington, and he had me walk over to the refrigerator, and he says, Oliver, 
And I was like, yeah, Uncle Pat, I could tell by the way he's using that voice. He's about to drop a truth bomb on me. He said, I want you to walk to the refrigerator, and I want you to open the freezer. And I was like, oh, gosh, Mr. Miyagi, you know? So I like open up, <laughs> open up the top of the, the, the freezer. He's like, what do you see? And I'm like, well, Uncle Peter, it's like <laughs> my freezer is about, you know, six feet tall, and opens it up, and, you know, if I opened it, it would just hit me in the face. He was like, so are you taller or shorter than the refrigerator freezer door? And I was like, Uncle Peter, I'm taller. I'm six foot tall. You know, I'm a six foot Asian monster. Like, I'm taller than the freezer. <laughs> he said, uh, you know, Oliver, when you were small, when your father used to open up the top of the freezer, the freezer would open up above your head. But now you're tall. You've grown. And when the freezer opens up, you're a different person. And so your relationship with your father is different. You see, my, my dad in the Iron Tiger of Hong Kong, where my grandfather George grew up and sold one watch and made it into five and then 15 and then ultimately 27 watch shops in China, there's a certain level of work ethic, and, and he would impose this into our family to say it like this. There's a lot of ancestry honor that goes on in Asian cultures. And so he said, our family is like a train in which the youngest child sits at the caboose and the next oldest is just in front of them and the next oldest in front of them in front of them until the oldest, which is George Wong, He's the locomotive, and the locomotive will lead, and if we can follow in his footsteps, we'll get to the place that we're supposed to go. It's basically the idea. He said, the thing about being a Christian uh, in a family that's non-Christian is that you have to follow your parents in the ways that they're like Christ, even if they don't mean to, but not follow them in the ways that they're not. And you'll have to walk through that path and figure that out. He said, so the truth is, is that we all are a family that is all moving its way through Asia and America and everywhere else. But the only difference is, is that the head locomotive is not George, it's Jesus. The person that's leading your family, whether they know it or not, is Jesus. And he's leading them to one place to good and glory uh, to those that would be called according to his purpose. And so I share all that to say this and we get into Romans 6 today, is that if you want to speak into somebody's decisions, the best thing to tell somebody is Statistics. Just tell them about Bitcoin and how much money they can make or just tell them the dangers of vaping or just tell them, you know, what happens if you drive down the road without a seatbelt on. If you want to affect somebody's decisions, tell them statistics. But if you want to speak into someone's identity, tell them their story. Because the gospel is not an invitation to better advice. It's an invitation to good news. And so when, when Paul turns the corner into Romans chapter 6 and he begins to talk about gospel change, not just gospel salvation, but gospel change, the first thing that he does in Romans chapter 6 is not to give these new Christians a statement. He gives them their story. He doesn't say, should you go on sinning so that grace may increase? How dare you? He says, should you go on sinning by no means once upon a time you once were? He gives them not a statement of shame, but a story of their, of their identity. And so there's uh, three, actually, you're going to find it in the passage, three no's, but not N-O's. The organization of the passage is not three no's to stop sinning. It's three no's, K-N-O-W, know your story. Because the person that knows their story knows who they are, and the person that has an identity always knows what obedience looks like. And so the reason why he says this is because ultimately we are free in Christ. We are free in Christ. There are three things that he's going to tell us that, that we need to know about. Our story, first and foremost, of baptism, that we die with Christ and now live with him. The story of the cross, which is the old man is now made powerless. We are set free from sin. 
And then he tells us the story of the tomb, which is not just his story, but our story. And therefore, because we are set free, we can live free. And the reason why he wants to tell us all this stuff in this story is because we are free. We are free in Christ. And so therefore, the opportunity before you this week, this month, in the next couple of chapters of your life is given to either triumph or tragedy or somewhere in between because the only thing sadder than somebody that's living in forced slavery is somebody that chooses their own slavery. That's what's ahead of you. Like the gift is better than the trespass because the trespass made you a slave. But the gift of grace allows you to reign in Christ. But that's your choice. It's your choice to occupy the gift or not. And so, um, and so the saddest possibility here of, of a Christian that continues on sinning is somebody that has had their liberty purchased but decides to live as a slave. And so really the gospel, as we get into it this morning, the gospel is not just asking you about theology, it's asking you about identity. It's not just asking you who do you think God is, it's asking you who do you think you are. Because as it says, even the demons believe in God and shudder. Paul, I know, Jesus, I know, but who are you? The gospel is not just asking who do you think Jesus is, the gospel is asking who do you think that you are. All right, so if you would pick up with me in uh, Romans chapter 6, we'll read through this passage together. It says, you know, what shall we say? This is Paul. What shall we say about this whole, this whole grace thing? You know, grace, it offers you a credit of righteousness. Your actions, your actions don't actually pull down the righteous decree of heaven over your life. Uh, your actions don't actually warrant you a right standing with God. Grace does that. And so what should we say about this new position we live in in Christ towards the Father? Should we go on sinning? And this is what Paul says indicatively, by no means. And then he says, the story, not the statement of truth, this is your story and my story, we are those who have died to sin. He says, how can we live in it any longer? See that? So the redirection of, of the Christian who is set free from sin to live into freedom is not to go backwards into slavery, but to move forwards into freedom and righteousness. How can we live there any longer if we've been set free from sin, says Paul? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So I know you got dressed up today and you brushed your teeth and you made it into church and found a parking spot. And uh, you probably didn't um, think that I was going to uh, preach at you something awkward and, um, and kind of weird sounding today. I don't know if you were prepared to kind of hear what I'm about to say today. Maybe you've heard it before. Maybe you've never heard it before. Uh, but there's a little bit of a plot twist of your life um, in the sense that I think we would all be, you know, uh, scared to think about um, our own mortality, our own death. You know, the idea of if somewhere out there in the future there's a death certificate, there is a death certificate, and there's a date on that thing, and there's a very re re real reality that we're not here on this earth forever. Uh, but Paul has just subversively kind of introduced to us a little bit of a plot twist into your life, a little bit of a sixth sense plot twist, <laughs> if you've ever seen that movie with Bruce Willis. Uh, and he's basically just told you and me that um, we've already died. Like, it was, it's kind of rude of me to sit, here, say, sit up here and tell you that, but there was, there was really no funeral, there's no coordination, you know, your dad wasn't, you know, like your mom wasn't there. You actually died 2,000 years ago. 
on a cross just outside Jerusalem. That was your death. That was the only death that you'll ever die. And, and in the meantime, we wonder what heaven's like, and we, we postulate that and theologize that, like what is heaven like, and what is it going to be like when we go to heaven? Well, the truth is, uh, the afterlife has already been answered because you're living it. Like, I know this is a plot twist, and I'm going to slow it down. Just, I don't want to, like, freak you out. But you are already dead. You died with Christ, crucified with Christ. Now Christ lives in you. And so the afterlife that we're really talking about when people talk about harps and, and diapers and all that kind of stuff, that's actually life after life after death, to be technically right. That's life after life after death. You are living your afterlife now. And the tombstone, the death certificate that is going to get plopped over a, a, place of gra- a plot of grass somewhere when you die, is actually recording the lifespan of your body, not your spirit. And so, and so you live right now as a free person. You did not become more morally aware. You did not become wiser and better. You did not just become a person that didn't believe that God was real and now believes that God is real. No, you went from being a dead slave to sin to being free in Christ 2,000 years ago. When you were baptized, you were proclaiming his death as an actual thing that 2,000 years ago, you died with Christ and you no longer live, now Christ lives in you. And so I was speaking with um, Audra, Audra Barnes, uh, who's a dear friend of of mine and a sister and somebody awesome in this church, and uh, she works nine to five at Switch. Y'all ever heard of Switch before? Yes, Switch um, is um, a nonprofit here locally as well as... um, um, in other regions as well, that works to uh, advocate for and create um, awareness for sex trafficking uh, here in the upstate, right here in Greenville, South Carolina, right here where you went down the street in Woodruff Road and some store that you passed by and so forth, there is sex trafficking. Actually, the ratios, the startling statistics of, 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 of sex slavery in the world today is greater than any other kind of slavery at any other period of time. The slavery that we think was abolished and done away with in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, it's still alive and well. It's just not operated based on, on, on codes and, and on, on racial lines. It's operated on the vulnerabilities of the young and the weak is really what it is. The common story of everyone that's sex trafficked is that there is somebody in, the, in each one of those scenarios that is weak and vulnerable emotionally, physically, spiritually, and a and an extorter, a sex trafficker, a a slave master, really, takes advantage of that person with drugs or with relational things or whatever and leverages that to enslave that person. And so I was talking to Audra, just meditating on this passage, just thinking about the ramifications of of this this exile slave narrative. And, um, you know, she talked about just the sadness of what what it looks like to see somebody get to the edge of an invisible prison. Like the difference between somebody being forced into slavery and then in some ways the ways that some of these people that are clients of the SWITCH program as well as us in terms of our spiritual nature and our sin battles uh, will get to the edge of freedom and then choose to go back into slavery. And so, for example, one of the stories was, you know, a young lady who, uh, based on a a major bust that went down uh, with the Greenville Police Department, was um, removed uh, from a trafficking scenario And while she was in prison, beat all of the odds by detoxing by herself off of incredibly addicting hard drugs and found herself out of prison, going into prison, being trafficked and addicted to drugs and coming out of prison, being free of drugs and drug addiction. 
She had heard from the police department and, and from, you know, the authorities of this thing called Switch, and so she got in contact with the Switch organization uh, to get into a, um, a remediation program to get into rehab. And so she had checked herself into rehab. She had been there for a few weeks, I believe, and she was making her way um, into the next steps. You know, Switch is going to help you with job and not just get you out of sex trafficking, but to get you into normalcy and into life. And right at about the edge of her time to kind of graduate out of that thing, she, um, as Audra had been informed and understood, um, had checked out of rehab to go to the hospital based on some psychiatric things that, that went along with that. Sometimes the emotional, the psychiatric, the spiritual, it all kind of converges. She checked herself into that hospital, and by the next time that Audra and the, and the team went to go look for her, she was gone and missing. And the next they heard, she was back in um, a known trafficking uh, triangle again. And so one of the saddest things is to see somebody on the edge of freedom, and not because of anything external like force or coercions or balls and, ball and chain, but because of an internal type of prison that can exist in any one of us that we could get the edge of freedom and then choose back into slavery. And this is the narrative that Paul is talking to each of us. To each of us, the idea of, of sin is slavery. Like the narrative of sin in the world is that sin is sexy. Like you go into, uh, you know, the, the legal codes of Greenville or even federal law, is there something called a sin tax? You know what a sin tax is? A sin tax is the tax that you pay to drink or smoke or do something that, you know, James Dean or Marilyn Monroe would have done. It's pitched to you as sexy. Sec, you know, sin is, is, is like a, a brand that gets attached to things like dark chocolate and lingerie and cars and, you know, all that stuff, right? There's a brand out there that if you live like James Dean and you live like Marilyn Monroe, you can live sexy and die sexy. And the last thing in this world you ever want to do is live boring and die boring, Right? But Paul is awakening us to our story. Don't be so easily fooled. If you don't know who you are, there are plenty of people in this world that want to tell you who you are. And if you don't know your story, there's plenty of people, including yourself, that will retell your narrative in a way that wants to make you a slave. And so those that are in the medical profession know this because we are removed from sin or from, from sickness oftentimes. And we're oftentimes, as westernized Americans, like we're removed from, from the end of somebody's life. We're invited into the hospital rooms where people are born, but oftentimes not when they die, Right? And so, for example, it's like my, my wife was talk, talking to me about this, and there was a person who was checked in, which used to be a nurse, and one of the first patients that she saw um, uh, happened to uh, be HIV positive. Um, they uh, were um, battling and had battled drug addiction for all their life, and they're, they're in this room, right? And the only people that were there uh, were their parents, and Kyra, I just remember th telling me when she was like probably 22 and she was seeing that, she just wondered like how many people had told that young man all the way through his life had loved him but were not in his hospital bed. Sin sells us this lie that sin is sexy, but Paul, Paul is telling us the truth this morning and the Spirit is telling us the truth. Sin is slavery. Sin has not, sin has not come to be your mistress, it's come to be your master. And no one has ever come in contact with sin and become the master of sin. And so sin, sin is this slavery. And holiness, as though it's pitted in the world, holiness is oftentimes pitted as the opposite of real, the opposite of authentic, the opposite of true, the opposite of human is to be holy, to be holy as I'm holy is some archaic, old, dusty term. As a matter of fact, in verse 22, which I'll read to you in just a moment, the opposite of holiness is not real. The opposite of holiness is shame. It's bondage. It's bondage. This is the way that he talks about it. Uh, at the end of the passage um, in, in verse 22, but now, haven't you been set free from sin and, and become slaves to God? The benefit you reap is holiness. 
And the result of holiness, the, the result of holiness is things like intimacy, actual intimacy, right? Like the lie is that sex is going to produce connection, but sex, right, you know, outside, outside of the context of what God has defined as holy only creates slavery. And you can go ask any of those people in those hospital rooms and, and at the end of their life, like sex is, or sin is sexy for maybe 10 years, but ask anybody that's living in sin for 50 years and see how sexy it is, how cute it is. Holiness is attached to things like intimacy, things like wisdom, things like, things like perseverance, things like character and strength, right? And so I, I, I just, I remember this, um, this, uh, this interview one time I heard on a podcast and, and, and it always stuck with me, right? Like he said, you know, who knows beyond, beyond the veil, the life after life after death, but probably based on the gnashing and teeth and the understanding of what hell actually is, that if heaven, heaven is a place that we would cross the finish line of our lives and run into the arms of Jesus and see what our lives could have been like if we didn't have Jesus, then hell must be something like the idea of getting to the edge of our life and realizing what our life could have been if we would have been in Jesus. What our relationships would have been like if we were in Jesus. And so he moves on and, and, and he starts talking about your body. How tall are you? How much, how much do you weigh? What, what color are your eyes? He starts talking about this, right? Because if you have an Exodus story, if you're not an Egypt person, if you're a Moses person, and you've been saved through the waters of baptism, your baptism was your Red Sea. You have a new narrative, and therefore you have a different relationship with sin, a different relationship with holiness, and now he's going to talk to you about you have a different relationship altogether with your body. So here it is. He says, um, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument to wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace." All right, let me show you a quick little chart, and uh, we're actually going to get into this more into the future weeks as we get into Romans 7. But this is, this is a little chart that I stole from Charlie Board over at Fellowship, and uh, this chart is called Basic Christian Anatomy, okay? I got a horrible grade in anatomy class. I don't even know. I don't even like to think about, think about anatomy, but this is Basic Christian Anatomy, okay? And essentially, what Romans 7 is teaching us, and it's getting a little bit of a preview here in Romans chapter 6, is that when you got saved... Your soul, which is actually not just the spiritual thing that kind of goes to heaven, your soul got partitioned into two different categories, which is first your inner man, which is your spirit. It's not actually your soul. Your soul is your body, your soul, your mind. That's, that's the whole kit and caboodle. But, but more accurately in the Christian vernacular, your inner man, your spirit, is distinguished from your outer man, which is your flesh, or Paul calls it in this passage, your mortal body, okay? Now... Here's what I, I want us to see on this chart. You see that pink area right there? That pink area, your spirit, is living your best life now. That pink area, your spirit, is thriving. Oh, man. You're, that pink area, your inner man right now, your inner woman, oh, my goodness. It is alive in Christ. Oh, my goodness. It, is, it can sing on pitch. I mean, it's like, 
It is not afraid of intimacy. It owns its mistakes. It is humble. It goes before the Lord boldly. It is an intercessor. Like your inner man has a spirit inside of it that's crying, Abba, Father. And it only knows victory. It only knows intimacy. It only knows righteousness. It only knows purity. It only knows holiness. Here's the problem. You live in the outer body, part two. And let me tell you what. Your inner man is living its best life now. Your body is a mess. Like, like I woke up yesterday, or on, on Thursday, I go to a men's group on, on Thursdays to go to Denny's. It's at five o'clock in the morning. I got into my car. I was doing great. I have an Accord. It has the, like, seat warmers. I'm 38. I'm not 80. I got into my car feeling great, and I got out of my car with a back injury. Like, <laughs> what in the world? Like, what in the literal world, right? Your body is so gullible and so temptable and so wrinkly, right? And for, for some of y'all, hairy and smell. I mean, just <laughs> your spirit, man, is great. Your body needs some work. Like your body needs a babysitter, right? Your body, if it doesn't get a Snickers bar by 12, might snap at your kids. Like your inner man wants to pour yourself out. Like, oh my gosh, the kids, I want to live for destiny. I want to live like Jesus. Your outer man needs a Snickers bar. He's like, yeah, that's real cool, but I'm hungry. Like, and I'm sorry for the things I said when I was hangry. Like this is literally Billy Graham to the day of his death, like had a body like you and me just smelly and just a problem. Not like sinful, like it's a good thing. And when we go into heaven and we make it into eternity, like our bodies are gonna be made new. But right now, they're not new. They're part of the old system. Super temptable, super fragile. There's things in your body that will make you give up your whole life so that you can have sex with a stranger. There's things in your body that in five seconds of a bad decision could take a born-again Christian that is set free out of sin and into freedom to live joy holiness, righteousness for the rest of their days and throw all that away because it wants to have sex for five minutes. You think about that. And so this is the tension that we live in, right, is that we live in a new relationship to our body. We live in a new relationship to our body because here's the deal. You are not your body and your body is not you. When you die, there's a tombstone over your grave and that's gonna mark off where your body is. But that body is going to live there until Jesus comes back, and that body is going to be made new, and you're going to live in a new thing where your whole soul is pink, where even your body, not alone your spirit, is, is made whole, made new. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's the deal, is that your body is used to an old system, which is, it used to be you were ruled by your body. All you did is whatever your body wanted. If you wanted to sleep, you slept. If you got angry, you just yelled at people. <laughs> If you, uh, if you wanted to have sex, you just had sex. If you want to look at something, you just look at something. If you heard something, you could just make it up whatever you wanted to. Your eyes, they would just go wherever you wanted. Your body was in charge. That was the deal. And so you were ruled by your body, and your body was ruled by sin. So what's happened now is there's been an inversion. And the difference is the grace is greater than the trespass because the, the trespass used to, make you a, used to make you a slave, right? But God's righteousness makes you reign with Jesus, which means before, sin was in charge of your body and your body was in charge of you. Now you're in charge of your body. Your body doesn't tell you what to do. You tell your body what to do. And so you used to wake up and your mouth used to just start going. And the lie says, well, that's what mouths do. No, it doesn't. Not in the kingdom. The pink reigns over the white on that one. Your spirit can tell your body what to do. It used to be that your eyes, they just start wandering, start going. You know what Job said? 
Job said this thing when, when he, he had this revelation of, of the Lord in his life and the faithfulness of the Lord came alive in his heart. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look on somebody lustfully. You know what he realized? He realized he had control of his body. He had the spirit of self-control. That our, that our feet, that our, that, our, that our hands, that our decisions, that our ears, they can come under the reign of us, which is therefore under the reign of Jesus. And so you could just wake up and say, I, I, want to, I want to offer my eyes to you today as an instrument of righteousness. You know what's so horrible in the span of military history is when we find out that the weapons we used to sell to other countries get used in wars against us. Isn't that just a, a bad plot twist? You know how much it's a mockery? Like if you hate cancer, evil, rape and sin, you know how much of a mockery it is to the dark powers that you took an old body that used to belong to it and took it back as a weapon of warfare against them? That, a, that an instrument of wickedness gets turned into an instrument of righteousness? You know how much damage that does to the kingdom of darkness? You know how much mockery that causes for your enemy and mine? To take an instrument that used to be automated by the kingdom and the prince of darkness and be used for righteousness. Now, here's what I'm saying. I think we're in a great moment right now of learning about self-care. Like, this is an important thing. Because the thing is, your body's not evil. Your body was made good, and it got submitted to an evil thing because of what Adam, what Adam did and because of what you did. And so it's used to an old paradigm. It needs to get discipled. Your body needs to get discipled. And you need to get discipled of how to disciple your body. Okay? But... But the deal is, is like, you should listen to your body. Like, there's, there's, your body is an amazing thing. Your body will have a panic attack because you've been shoving spiritual significant things down beneath the surface, and it needs attention. You realize that your body will give you dreams in the middle of the night of issues that you're not dealing with during the day? Because your body is programmed for Eden, right? Your body was created good, but it was turned upside down. So it still has those things. Your body, your body is telling you um, your body is telling you about, um, about the, 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 the hunger that you, that you have in, inside of yourself for something more, for something better, right? So that's, that's the deal, is that you should, you should listen to your body. Ephesians 5 says to care for your wife and love her as though it's your own body, right? And your body, therefore, because you're in Christ, is a part of the body of Christ. And so it's like, listen to your body, love your body, but here's the deal. At the end of the day, Jesus says to pick up your cross, deny yourself, and to lead your body into righteousness. You are the leader of your body. The body is not the leader, not the leader of you. And so I'll just quote this one passage, and we'll kind of move forward into the last part, but 1 Corinthians 9, 27, think about your body this way. In the, in the moment of self-care, just consider what Paul says, no, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. There's three metaphors that Paul gives to Timothy about who we are in Christ and how we live out down here. And none of them are chilling on the couch and going on vacation. Like, athlete, farmer, and soldier. This is the deal. Is like, I do a little calculation in my head. He literally says, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. This is what that means. Go home, get a budget, get a pencil and paper, figure out which car you're going to buy, right? But then, for your body, think about it this way. If I'm alive in Christ and my body is dead and dying, then what is the best way that I can offer my body as a living sacrifice today? How many, how many more years do I have left? I got 60 years left? Okay, like your body needs eight hours of sleep. It doesn't need another drink. It doesn't need another t-shirt. Like what does your body really need, okay? It's an instrument. 
It's just an instrument. It's a thing that will have a tombstone over it one day, and it's going to get used for wickedness or righteousness or somewhere in between. So do the budget. If I'm dead to sin, alive to Christ, I'm here for 60 more years, then don't save your body. Give your body. Give your body as a living sacrifice. How can I live my life in such a way down here that I believe I died 2,000 years ago? And that my body is not who I am, but who God says that I am is who I am. So I offer my body as a living, as a living sacrifice. All right, so the very last portion here in, in verse uh, 15. He says, what then shall we say? And he doubles down on this whole argument about a Christian in freedom not still continuing to walk in sin. Shall we sin because we are no longer under the law but under grace? He doubles down, by no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourself as an obedient slave, you are slaves of the one you obey? Your actions tell you really who your master is. So whether you are slaves to sin that leads to death or slaves to obedience which leads to righteousness, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of the teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. He says, verse 19, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Like in other words, it feels a little bit itchy to think about righteousness as a kind of a slavery, since we already know in Romans 8 that we're not slaves, we're sons, and we do things willingly. But he's kind of answering to that there. Like, he's like, bear with me on this metaphor because I'm using it for a purpose. It's like every metaphor kind of breaks down at some point. You know what I'm saying? And so he's saying, you were a slave to sin, which is an actual, accurate disposition of how to describe sin, but really the whole slave to righteousness thing it's used with a bit of tongue-in-cheek. It's used with a bit of interpretation, and the metaphor sort of breaks down. So verse 19, he's saying, I'm using the example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. He says, when, when you were a slave to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things resulted in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leaves holiness. And the result is eternal life. And for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. You see, the reason why I think he is using the human metaphor of slavery and righteousness to juxtapose it and contrast it with slavery to sin is not because he's saying that righteousness is as compulsory as sin is because we know that people that are free in Christ oftentimes don't practice righteousness even though they're, quote, a slave to righteousness. What he's really saying is for you to consider the fact that oftentimes, unfortunately, human beings are more ready to give more to what they would have given to their slavery than they would give to their sonship. Unfortunately, the way that we are in our freedoms is that we will oftentimes give our better and our best to our bullies and give our least and our last to our friends. We oftentimes find it easier to give more to our fears than our loves. It's sort of human nature, am I right? There's a level of, we think back on our past, that we oftentimes gave more affection and priority and care to our boyfriends than we do our husbands. Because there was more that we wanted of them, and there was more that they had over us, and so we were more willing to give to our fears than we are to our loves, the same way to our husbands, that we were more likely to be pursuing our girlfriends and 
giving the flowers and giving the compliments because we are geared to give more to our slavery, unfortunately, sometimes than our sonship. We are more likely to give honor to the people that can control our paychecks and can control uh, our politics and control our popularity than we are to give honor to our parents because we are creatures that are more likely to give the best and the better to the things that are, we are enslaved to than to give our best, our first, and our most to the people that we love. And he's saying that can't be so. He's saying that in this newfound identity in Christ, you should give, if not at least as much, if not more than to the people that you love than the people that you are afraid of. That if you made Jesus your master, just because he doesn't force you and take obedience off of you, don't offer him any less. Offer your whole body. Offer your whole life. Offer your whole paycheck, your whole account. Consider what you used to do for things like significance, success, and security, and offer all of that to Christ Jesus and the family of God and to the family that you have. Isn't he worth as much, if not more, than that? And so the relationship that we have, the reason why the gift is better, is better than the trespass is because we are now offering in Christ what we used to have to do for force, we offer for freedom. We offer because we used to have to, but now we get to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to Jesus Christ. And so I don't know how you guys are around November, December. I'm a rebel of December, man. Like, I don't, I don't need to get my Christmas presents ready, you know? I just like, I'll, I'll fly by the seat of my pants. I'm just romantic. I'm going to get my Christmas presents. Now, some of you guys like are type A. Y'all got your Christmas presents done in October. You guys got the whole thing set up, all the Amazon Primes. You guys are just having everything safely nestled under the tree by the time the Christmas rolls. Not me. I'm a last-minute guy. You know, I get it all together. And I always tell myself, you guys ever tell yourself in Christmas time, in November and December, that it's not really about gifts, it's just about love. You know, oh, it'll just be about love, and I'll just give a big warm smile to grandma, and we'll just work it out and put a bunch of cash in an envelope, and it'll work out. And it never works out. At Christmas time on the 25th, as much as you were Ebenezer Scrooge by humbug on the way there, you're like Elf and Will Ferrell by the time the 25th hits, and you're just, you're just ready to celebrate by the time it's the 25th. And it's a sad thing when you realize that by the time you get to Christmas and you get in front of your mom, you get in front of your wife, you get in front of your kids, that you didn't gift the gift, get a gift that you wanted to give them that you didn't have the preparation for the gift that you want to offer. And so if you notice, like the language here in the back end of this chapter and all the way, way throughout is the way that we live our lives is not something that's taken from us by God, but something that's offered freely from us. And what the enemy used to take from us, Jesus invites us to offer to him, offer him a living sacrifice, offer him our lives, offer him not only our nine to five, but our five to nine and everything in between. And we were offering for freedom what we used to be forced into slavery because we are sons and not slaves. And the last thing that we'd wanna do is come to the edge of the life after life after death and not have a gift to bring him. Isn't he worthy? Isn't he worthy of an instrument of righteousness? Isn't he worthy of a living sacrifice? If he has offered us to be a sacrifice on our behalf, an atoning sacrifice to spare nothing, to give us, not give us something that costs him nothing, to offer his very flesh and blood. Isn't it right and aligned with our story as we've been ex exodus out of sin, out of sin slavery, into freedom, that we would give all of our lives to him, not because we have to, but because we want to, not because we're compulsory uh, givers, but because we are glad and joyful givers to give him everything that we have um, because he's worth it. And so um, there's a great song by uh, Elevation that's out. that um, just came out recently. There's an album that's called uh, Lion, but it's a picture of a lamb, so it's kind of like a, 
Interesting little paradox. But it's called Bye Bye Babylon. And um, uh, as the band comes forward, I, I thought I would just kind of read the passage because, or read the, the song and the lyrics because essentially as I'm understanding the song to be about, um, the generation that was exiled out of Egypt and wandered into the wilderness and then eventually got into the promised land um, was handed over to their sin and eventually exiled into uh, an empire called Babylon. And, um, and what this song is about, the lyrics that I'll read from the screen, um, is about um, the generation that actually was born after was, they were exiled out of Canaan and into Babylon and just grew up in Babylon only knowing Babylon's ways, only knowing Babylon's culture. That there were a group of people within the Jewish family that had only ate, slept, breathed, learned, taught, sold, bought in Babylon's culture. And because all they knew was Babylon, when, even when they were allowed to leave that captivity and go home, they decided to stay on their own and by choice became their own slaves. And so that remnant that stayed and remained in Babylon um, has a sad story, I think, of what, unfortunately, I think many, many Christians live in, which is to be set free from the power of sin but not live free. To still live under the culture and the intoxication of Babylon because they never knew the freedom that they came from and they never knew the freedom of the home that they could live in. And I think this song, you know, would speak to us. And so, anyways, the lyrics just read like this. Maybe it would speak to some of us today. Daughters of, ba- daughters of Zion, another word for Jerusalem, weep no more. Pack your bags, the song says. We're going home. Shake off your captivity. Today is the day we shall set, be set free. You see, sin isn't just a mistress, it's a master. Sin isn't just a struggle, something that you're working on at the late hours of the night. Sin was a prison. Sin was the prison that all of Adam was born into, and it is the reason for cancer, the reason for injustice, the reason for every ugly thing we see on the news, and it's not just out there, it's in here. Sin is a poison that has come up inside of me. Sin is a power that has come up over me in Adam, and Jesus the Messiah didn't just come to be my, vo- my guru buddy, he came to be my Messiah and opened the prison doors to be let free. And if I didn't know my story, I wouldn't understand that Jesus was my Messiah, and I would think that Jesus was come to take my freedom from me. Rather, he's come to give me freedom, to shake off the dust of Babylon, the place that I was born up into, thinking that the, the, the oxygen and circulation of this environment is all there is. But we are not our body, and we are not our government, and we are not our socioeconomic status. We are his and his alone, and if we don't know our story, someone else will tell us our story until we're lured to sleep by the sirens of Babylon. And so the songs that we sing when we gather here are as important as the sermons because it's us declaring not just what we should be doing, but who we are in Christ. Because there's no one else that's going to tell us who we are in Christ other than the Spirit. So learn the old forgotten songs, says Chris Brown from Elevation. Sing the ones you know by heart. When you're driving down the road, if you don't know a passage, just even that lyric, just that song is so powerful. Because the gospel is not just about who God is, it's about who you are and who he's made you to be. And so sing it, not just with your mouth, but with your heart. And take down your heart from the willow tree. Reclaim the long lost melody and sing. Bye, bye, bye. Laugh and dance like kings and queens. Bye, bye, bye. Our children, our children's children shall be free. Bye, bye, bye. Our children's children shall be free. Bye, bye, bye. Babylon. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. 
For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.